Chapter Six of the Ghosts of Piccadilly. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Peter Yearsley. The Ghosts of Piccadilly by G. S. Street. Chapter Six. Byron. Albany saw the last of Byron's bachelor life, and a hundred and thirty-nine Piccadilly, the last of his life in England. He went to live in Albany in the original house on the ground floor, set A two on March the 28th, 1814. This night, he writes in his journal of that date, got into my new apartments, rented of Lord Althorpe, on a lease of seven years, spacious, and room for my books and sabres, in the house, too, another advantage. His landlord was about to be married. March of the following year saw him also married at 139 Piccadilly, and so many references to him in other people's memoirs and stories refer to his rooms in Albany, where he lived only this one year, that I imagine they are confused with his other lodgings, in Bennett Street and St. James's Street, about town. His life in Albany is typical, however, unhappily, the reader may suppose, of his bachelor life in London. He continued there his alternation between excess and a frightened, lest he should grow fat, and unwise abstinence. The very night before he settled in Albany, he dined tete-a-tete -tete with his friend Scrope Davies at the Cocoa Tree, 64 St. James's Street, where there is still a club of the name, and he tells us in the journal, sat from six till midnight, drank between us one bottle of champagne and six of claret, neither of which wines ever affect me. Poor Scrope was less immune, Note, it was Scrope Davies, by the way, who said that Byron was only a fair holiday drinker, end note, for he became tipsy and pious, and I was obliged to leave him praying to I know not what purpose or pay God. And his first letter from Albany, April the ninth, to Thomas Moore, contains an account equally distressing to us. I have also been drinking, and on one occasion he was so proud of it, which I think in itself proves it was no habit, and remember, censor, he was only twenty-six. On one occasion, with three other friends at the cocoa-tree, from six till four, yea, until five in the matin, we clareted and champagned till two, then supped, and finished with a kind of regency punch, composed of Madeira brandy and green tea, no real water being admitted therein. There was a night for you! It would have been a last night for me. Then he would live for days on biscuits and soda-water, which he ordered in two dozen at a time. There is a bill for it yet extant, and drank copiously. Byron's genius as a poet came at the right moment for its full effect on Europe, but his stomach was born out of due time. Were he living in our day, the apostles of new diets would have found in him their most attentive listener, their most enthusiastic practitioner. Whether claret or soda-water was his drink, however, he satisfied a large part of our contemporary morality by severe physical exercise. He boxed for an hour a day in Albany with Gentleman Jackson, and practised the broadsword with Henry Angelo. This famous master records an occasion when they were so engaged, and Hobhouse entered the room. How Byron, characteristically, did not desist from advancing on me, but seemed more determined to show his friend how well he could beat his broadsword master. And he adds this curious account. 
his preparation for his exercise was rather singular first stripping himself then putting on a thick flannel jacket and over it a pelisse lined with fur tied round with a turkish shawl when he had taken a sufficient gymnastic soderific if he did not go directly and increase it between the blankets he had his valet to rub him down there is a picture for you to imagine if you visit albany a two all such things are significant in the life of a great man as we know on carlyle's authority but let us turn to matters more immediately of the spirit although the boxing was done to keep up the ethereal part of me there is not much to be gained from the journal however he wrote no more in it having kept it some five months after april the nineteenth there is a passage no bookish man can read without sympathy in praise of solitude and getting home to one's own room i do not know that i am happiest when alone but this i am sure of that i never am long in the society even of her i love god knows too well and the devil probably too without a yearning for the company of my lamp and my utterly confused and tumbled-over library venomous larum ad nostrum readers note translation from the latin we come to our own home end readers note that big room in albany was a comfort to the poet though lara and the ode to napoleon was all the poetry he wrote there it was the time of the first abdication and napoleon was much in byron's mind he and other whigs were of course pro boers and expressed their feelings with an immunity at which our extreme imperialists to-day must marvel april the eighth out of town six days on my return found my poor little pagod napoleon pushed off his pedestal the thieves are in paris and the journal ends excitedly on the same subject i cannot help wondering if the poet had been in the society of scrope davies and to prevent me from returning like a dog to the vomit of memory i tear out the remaining leaves of this volume and write in ipecacuana that the bourbons are restored hang up philosophy to be sure i have long despised myself and man but i never spat in the face of my species before oh fool i shall go mad some faint touch of the cocoa tree there one is forced to think but in no mental condition did byron forget his shakespeare at this time the rage of his lionizing was over but he was still going much into society sending verses to lady jersey mixing with rogers and moore making love unwisely and i think in spite of the turmoil he professed to dislike taking more pleasure in life than it gave him often lady caroline lamb's affair was over lady oxford's and lady francis webster's had been since according however to a letter from lady caroline to captain medwin thackeray's captain sumph with his banal stories of the poet written after byron's death it was in albany they parted for the last time but it is also true that the last time we parted for ever as he pressed his lips on mine it was in the albany he said poor caro if every one hates me you i see will never change no not with ill usage and i said yes i am changed and shall come near you no more for then he showed me letters and told me things i cannot repeat and all my attachment went this was our last parting scene well i remember it it had an effect upon me not to be conceived three years i had worshipped him it is touching 
but I hope the lady's warm imagination played her false, at least about the telling things and the showing letters. And yet, I know, there were two Byrons, he who felt and thought deeply and acted generously, and the unworthy Byron, who was fanfaron de ses vices, and wanted to startle and shock. Reader's Note Fanfaron de ses vices is boastful of his vices. End Reader's Note It is possible, this showing of letters, but I hope she was mistaken. Here, in any case, is another scene in Albany, for the reader's fancy. The letters of Byron from Albany are not of any especial interest. They are characteristic, however. There is the authentic Byron in them, egotistical, unselfish, vain, modest, generous. We find him giving three thousand pounds to his sister Augusta, humorous, affectionate. Much of his tenancy of these rooms he spent in the country, and, as we know, his ill-fated proposal of marriage to Miss Milbank was written from Newstead, and there he received his answer. On March the 31st, 1815, he writes from Piccadilly, a married man. 13 Piccadilly Terrace was half of Old Q's house, and is now 139 Piccadilly. Old Q, who died in 1810, left it to Mie Mie, Lady Hartford, but Byron rented it from Elizabeth, Duchess of Devonshire. The rent was £700 a year, and the payment involved some correspondence when Byron was settled in Italy. A short while afterwards the house passed to the family of Lord Rosebery, to whom I believe it still belongs. Old Q, Byron, Lord Rosebery, to be sure a house of varied distinctions. While Byron lived there, he wrote Parisina, and the Siege of Corinth, met Walter Scott for the first time, served on the Drury Lane Committee, was served with sixteen writs, had an execution in his house, and separated from his wife. Of all these experiences, perhaps the best to tell are of those on the committee, of which Byron had a lively recollection, and wrote of years afterwards in his Detached Thoughts. His letters of the time are full of the committee's perplexities, which, as any reader with a knowledge of theatres may guess, were many and various. His colleagues on the committee were Lord Essex, George Lamb, Douglas Kinnaird, and Peter Moore, all very zealous and in earnest to do good and so forth. Of course they were, and the experiment, not often seen since, of a theatre run by educated people with an interest in contemporary literature, was certainly an attractive one. Committees seldom do much, however, and this had an intractable subject matter. We were but few, and never agreed. There was Peter Moore, who contradicted Kinnaird, and Kinnaird, who contradicted everybody. It was not from the actors that their troubles chiefly came. In Byron's time, actors did not expect all the reverence which is not paid to cabinet ministers and Byron's bonhomie and humour no doubt conciliated them. Players, says he, are said to be an impracticable people. They are so, but I managed to steer clear of any disputes with them, and, excepting one debate with the elder Byrne about Miss Smith's pader something I forget the technicals, I do not remember any litigation of my own. I used to protect Miss Smith because she was like Lady Jane Harley in the face, and likenesses go a great way with me. Byron's idea of impartial casting in the interests of the theatre seems to have been 
odd. His colleagues reproved him for buffooning with the histrions, and throwing things into confusion by treating light matters with levity. Edmund Keane was their star, and for him Byron had an enthusiasm. His emotion over Keane's Sir Giles' overreach is an old story. I am sorry to say it was the authors, not the players, who gave most trouble. The committee, and Byron in particular, were anxious to induce writers of reputation to do something for the stage, but even then it seemed already fated that the stage in England could only be served by, how can one put it inoffensively? Well, by people who were not otherwise of account as writers. Here, however, was a rare opportunity for writers of account at least to be considered with a bias in their favour, and not the other way, and it was a thousand pities it was not taken. Walter Scott would do nothing, neither would Thomas More, nor, indeed, Byron. There was, to be sure, a consideration which now has an opposite reason. To a popular author the stage offered nothing like the money he could make in other ways. Walter Scott wrote a note on the passage in the detached thoughts in which Byron laments how he was asked in vain, recollecting the occasion, and how he declined partly from the probability of not succeeding, and partly from dislike of being kept in subjection by the good folks of the green room, ceteraque ingenio non subiunda meo, and how Byron emphatically agreed with him. Reader's note, ceteraque ingenio non subiunda meo, translates as, and the rest is not to be suggested to my mind. End reader's note. Whereon Lockhart has a note of his own, saying that this was nonsense. Neither player nor manager has lived in our time that durst have stood erect. They are braver in our time. In the presence of either of these men, etc. That ceteraque meant to say nothing of money matters. It may have been so, but times are altogether changed in this respect, and yet our best men have nothing to do with the theatre. The trend of their thought and labour had set away from it then, and still so sets, though there may be signs of a return. However, Byron tried Coleridge also, and Maturin, recommended by Scott, sent Bertram, which afterwards succeeded, and Mr. Sotheby obligingly offered all his tragedies, and Byron got Ivan accepted, and had a long correspondence with the author. And then Keane didn't like it, and the author was angry, and so forth, and so on. It is odd to think of a man who, criticise his poetry as you will, had, beyond Cavill, one of the greatest and most masculine intellects England has known, frittering away his time over these futilities. But he seems to have enjoyed them. Then the scenes I had to go through— the authors and the authoresses, the milliners, the wild Irishmen, the people from Brighton, from Blackwall, from Chatham, from Cheltenham, from Dublin, from Dundee, who came in upon me, Miss Emma somebody, with a play entitled The Bandit of Bohemia, or some such title or production, Mr. O'Higgins, then resident at Richmond, with an Irish tragedy, in which the unities could not fail to be observed, for the protagonist was chained by the leg to a pillar during the chief part of the performance. Mr. O'Higgins was a wild man of a salvage appearance, and Byron was afraid to laugh. Social pressure was, of course, applied to him, 
and we find him writing to Mrs. George Lamb, who had written to him on behalf of some protégé and said she would try to soften his colleagues Kinnaird and George Lamb, that he was the most obdurate and insisted on being softened first. It was altogether an amusing game. More so than the writs, though from these too Byron managed to get instruction and amusement. When the bailiff descended on 139 Piccadilly, Byron wanted to know if he had nothing for Sheridan. Oh, Sheridan, aye, I have this. And a dismal pocket-book, as Thackeray called it, was produced. But, my lord, I have been in Mr. Sheridan's house a twelvemonth at a time. A civil gentleman knows how to deal with us. Byron took the hint, and happily did not have the bailiff for a year with him. Of Sheridan, by the way, he was seeing much at this time. Sheridan woefully in his decline, drunken, maudlin, quarrelsome. Byron always liked and admired him, and said, his very dregs are better than the first sprightly runnings of others. But as he appears in the records of this day, there seems to me little to value in him. He never laughed, he would sit silent for long, and then attack some fellow guest, and he would weep and complain that he had never had a shilling of his own, though, as Byron said, he had extracted a good many of other people's. There have been more amiable ruins than this, but no doubt when you have supported a man in his cups, down a damned corkscrew staircase, which had certainly been constructed before the discovery of fermented liquors, you feel kindly towards him. How strange now and boyish seem these orgies of orators and poets. The dinner-party in question had been first silent, then talky, then argumentative, then disputatious, then unintelligible, then altogethery, then inarticulate, and then drunk. What a life! Well, it was soon to end for Byron. On the 10th of December, 1815, his daughter Ada was born, and on the 25th of April, 1816, he sailed for Ostend. There has been too much of debate and theory about Byron's separation from his wife that I should add to it in this casual place. A dreadful reason in the background may or may not have decided Lady Byron. It is difficult to believe from her letters that it was so. But tempers which could not agree, which were doomed never to agree, were reason enough for the separation. Many an argument, shot through with pain and heart-burning, must there have been in that house in Piccadilly. Many a sad and anxious debate, when she had gone, and his sister and his friends came to him. If houses harbour the passions and sorrows of the dead, I should not like to live there. A great heart and a great brain, stabbed by great trouble, racked by little troubles, it is an evil memory. In those last days Byron wrote the beautiful verses to his wife, Fare You Well, and the bitter verses on her confidant, Mrs. Claremont, Born in the garret, in the kitchen, bread which some fool or traitor sent to the newspapers, and which was the signal for the public outcry on him. The private outcry had been long set going, and had barred him from every great house in London but Lady Jersey's. In these last days, too, that the inevitable touch of farce should not be absent, little Nathan, the Jew singer, was continually in the house. Nathan, who had persuaded him to write the Hebrew Melodies, 
and drew Tom Moore's chaff on him. "'Sunburn Nathan,' says Byron in a letter, and Nathan got fifty pounds from him, and sent him a present of Passover cakes. Byron's polite acknowledgment of this gift seems to be the last letter he wrote in London. Byron had signed the deed of separation, delivering it as the act and deed, as a rare bit of gossip in a dull book of letters published lately tells us, not of himself, but of Mrs. Claremont. He had parted from Augusta, almost the last being, as he wrote to his wife, whom you have left me to part with, and the end of his life in England came. There is a last scene from 139 Piccadilly. You see him come out, his beautiful pale face, without the light that made it, said Walter Scott, a thing to dream of, and limp into his carriage. End of chapter 6